We, uh, my name is Justin, one of the elders, pastors here at Peninsula Grace, and I just want to give you a heads up after the uh, sermon, as we kind of close out our time together, we're going to have a, a time to pray together. So if you have a prayer request on your heart that you would like to share, uh, just be thinking about that uh, as, we're, as we're moving in that direction here. Um, we all have heroes that we secretly uh, want to be or want to be like. Maybe it's a sports star. You wanted to be like Mike growing up. Or maybe it's a movie star, a superhero. Uh, I found a cape in Ross's office earlier this week, so we're, we're going to have to have some conversations. Um, I'm a weirdo because my superhero has been a pastor. Uh, there's, I didn't grow up playing with pastor action figures, although I don't even know if they made them back then. You know, like, really? Rebukes? Like, I don't know if, they, if that's a thing. Uh, but I, I, Matt Chandler has been one uh, who, man, I just kind of fanboy over. He's a pastor down in Texas at the Village Church, and uh, he has deeply encouraged and instructed my soul over time, kind of a pastor to me as a pastor. And one of the things I've noticed after listening to probably several hundred of his sermons, um, after listening to him online, reading his books, spying on him in the privacy of his home, uh, things like that, uh, I've slowly started to become like Matt Chandler. Uh, you can even see, so, you go, I mean, seriously, go watch him at one of his uh, YouTube, you know, one of their, his sermons, and he, I do a lot of his hand motions like this, and some of his inflections have become mine, and even a lot of my prayers, I notice he prays at the end of his messages, it's in your beautiful name that we pray, and I've started, if you've been here, I often will say, in your, it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Now, how did this happen, right? How did this process happen? I, I didn't go to a how to be like Matt Chandler seminar or take a class and I'm writing notes, trying to follow along. How do I imitate him? This has just happened naturally as I've valued his teaching, as I've valued uh, his, his message and what he believes. And over time, uh, the, the truth is we become what we behold. So as I've listened to him and watched him, I've slowly, over time, started to imitate him, started to become like him. The truth that we've been zeroing in on in our vision series here is that we are transformed by what we worship, transformed by what we worship. The things that we give value to, give pay our attention to, start to change us. And this is week two of a five-week series that we're calling being transformed by the storyteller. And we're talking about the purpose of the church, centering around the idea of worship. And we said that we're kind of keying off the idea of Romans 12.1 and what it means to worship God. And it's this, that our worship of God is the giving of ourselves to him. As we present our very lives to God, and that's our part, worship is giving ourselves to God. His part, Paul says in Romans 12, is to transform us. He's going to change us as we uh, watch him and worship and give ourselves to him. Now here's the reality. Make no mistake. We are worshiping something. We are giving our attention to something. The question is, to who or to what are we giving our attention to and what or who is transforming us? We said last week that our purpose comes from the story that we believe we're living in. Again, we all believe some version of a story of the good life, of the narrative that we're living in, in our lives right now. And so we want to make stinking sure that as we gather together as a body, that we are wrapping our minds and hearts and lives around God's true story. So last week that the Bible tells us it's a story about God himself and our worship of this God. 
And so how, how do we become transformed by this, new, this true story? Well, we, we talked about that really if we summed up the Bible in four words, we would, we would, I would say this. It's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at each one of those parts of the storyline and how the truths of this story shape us as Jesus followers. So this week, we're going to look at creation and the reality that God is holy as creator and our job as his creation is to respond to our createdness in praise and in adoration. Next week, we're going to look at the fact that we are sinners, that we did not respond in praise, and, and therefore, we are a people that come to God and confess that sin and cry out for rescue. We're also going to see that he heard that cry and has sent Jesus to rescue, and so we can thank our God for healing us, transforming us, giving us new life in Christ, and that he's coming back to consummate. This is how this is going to end. The completion of all things is the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, He's going to send us out on mission to bring heaven to earth as we go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. This is the true story. Now, if you have your bulletins and we have point number one, here's what I want you to do. Take a big X over top of it because ain't nobody got time for point number one, all right? Point number two. Worship, I'm t- <laughs> if, you, if you got OCD, come up to me afterward. I'll fill in the blanks for you. Breathe out. Okay, so wor- number two, worship begins with God. God speaks. The, the truth of creation is that God initiated worship. Mike Cosper tells us this. He said the first thing we need to acknowledge when we gather with God's church is that the whole thing, from the entire creation, everything that's been made, to the very thought of gathering to worship the creator, this was God's idea. So this wasn't some think tank where we're like, you know what we should do? We should gather together and worship God. The very worship of God, the very reality that we exist as his creation, all originates from God, and it's his idea. So we would say it this way, God initiates worship. God initiates worship. Now, how do we know that God initiates worship? Well, we turn to his word, right? For the Bible tells us so. We see three things, three reasons in scripture why worship starts with God. Uh, first one, because God is the starting point of all things. If you open your Bible to the very beginning, we're four words in. It says, in the beginning, God. That scripture actually just assumes God's existence. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God started. He was there. God is the only one who was there in the beginning of the creation of everything else. And therefore, our worship begins with him because everything begins with him. second thing we see is God initiates worship because everything made is an echo of its maker. Everything that has been made is an echo of its maker. I love Psalm 19. It says it this way. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. It's not audible words, but he says, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. That everything that's made around us echoes, points back to the one who made it. And this is always true. If I was to make a birdhouse or a birthday cake, they would reflect, they would echo their creator and his incompetence and extreme lack of coordination and creativity, right? We've been watching that Netflix show, Nailed It, like I belong on that show, right? That my creation would echo my glory or lack thereof. But we look at creation. God did a much better job than I did. Anybody see the aurora a couple weeks ago? 
Lucky, I know. I'm like, the groaning, that was me. Jill and I were, that five minutes that we were actually sleeping as newborn parents, yeah, missed the aurora. And Facebook was there in the morning to rub it in. But the, God's cr- the creator of all we see, and what we see is an echo of the one who made all these things. And as we look around in our world, we see the extravagance, the beauty, and the power that reflect, that echo back to the one who made all these things starts with him because he made it. And then the third thing we see is that we're made in his image, that we specifically as his created human beings, as we'll talk about at our lunch today, reflect him in a unique way. God said in Genesis 1, God created humans in his own image. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the word image, uh, it had the idea actually in the Greek was the word icon. You know, we think about our little icons on the computer screen. It's a representation of something else. And really it was carried the idea of a statue. So when we go to the Lincoln Memorial in D.C., the purpose of this statue is to represent the the person of the statue and to reflect his glory, to remind us of, of what Abraham Lincoln did as a president, who he was, what he accomplished in office. And you and I are little image bearers of God, that our job is to reflect and represent who our God is to the watching world in the way that we act and the way that we live. We are uniquely hardwired to echo his glory. So we see here that God, he is the great initiator. He made the world. He made us. And so everything we do, everything. And when we gather here today, the songs that we sing, the word that we listen to, um, the the meal that we're going to have in a little bit, like these all are to be centered around a response to God's initiation and then invitation. What do we sing right before I got up here? No, who else would invite me to call him Father? God has invited us. And that's why we gather, guys. Like, we don't just come here to kind of get our spiritual high for the week to hopefully get us through the rest of the week. I just got to capture a good feeling. We don't come here to just get a little bit smarter, learn a new little fact about God. And we certainly don't just come here to check a box. We don't gather together as God's people to kind of alleviate our conscience so that we feel better about ourselves the rest of the week. Well, I gave God his time, and now things will go my way, and he can kind of get off my back for the other six days. No, the reason we gather, the reason we gather, I'd say, I would say it two different ways. Number one, we come because God calls. God calls us to come. And you just we stop and sit on that for a minute. Like, how amazing that God wants us to come to him. Like, that, that God, the maker of the universe, wants intimacy with us. Like, he just wants to be with us. And I think about now, I think about that differently as a father. And, and just to, I want to just be with Lucy. I just want to spend time with her, just like as a sponge. I just, sometimes I feel like I wish I could, like, suck the adorableness and, and wander out of her into me. Like, I can't get enough. And she's just sitting in my lap and just delighting in her. I just want her with me. And this is what our God desires with us. He invites us into relationship. This is what Jesus says in Revelation 3. In the context here, he's talking to believers. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. He doesn't put up with us as peons. He has invited us into feasting with him, to an intimate relationship, snuggling up with us like a father with his child. This is not the Hunger Games lottery where he's just kind of picking off, you're going to come worship me, you've got to worship me. This isn't the military draft. This is God inviting us into relationship with himself. At the same time, we do come because God commands. So he calls, but he also commands. Now, this is not just a mere suggestion. If you want to, 
We read Psalm 100. We, Danny read it as we began our time together to worship. And you hear the, com- these are, hear the command words. And these are good commands. These are wonderful commands, but they are commands. Psalm 100. Shout. Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. That's what we're told to do as his created ones. Worship. That's a command. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge. Acknowledge that the Lord is God, that he made us and we are his. His people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter. Come in. Enter the gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with with praise. Give thanks and praise him. Why? Why would we do this? And why are those commands good? For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. God commands us, come and worship him. He commanded that to Israel. Remember, he created a nation. And he said, worship the Lord your God alone. That's what Jesus told Satan. That's why he didn't bow to Satan. He said, no, no, no. My father has said, worship him alone. That was the command. Now, God doesn't force us. He doesn't grab us by the scruff of the neck and say, get out and bow to me. It's why God gave Adam and Eve a choice in the garden, to choose to worship him or not. We have a choice today whether we will worship, respond, and receive the invitation. But let's make no mistake, he is God, and therefore one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Now, if you're like me, you can wrestle with that sometimes. Like, is, is God, like, arrogant? Like, he just, he, he's just all full of himself? Well, he's not arrogant because he's rightly, he's worthy of that praise. Like, if I demanded you all to praise me, that's weird, right? And that's heresy. That's wrong because I don't deserve your praise. But God also doesn't operate out of a place of insecurity. Sometimes we're like, does God, see like the needy boyfriend or whatever that just needs our affirmation and our praise, that he just needs us to remind him of how awesome he is when he's feeling blue? That is not why our, our God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything, which is a beautiful truth. If he could create us to give, he doesn't need to take anything from us. In fact, the reason he commands us to praise him, it's right to praise him, he's worthy of it, but it's also the best thing for us. That you and I were designed to praise our God. That this is actually freedom. We've talked about before. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want. It's not autonomy. Freedom is the ability to do what we were designed or created to do. If I submerge an eagle under the water, he is not free to be what his maker designed him to be. We are not free until we are worshiping God as he is because that's what we were designed to do. There I go with my Matt Chandler again. Worship is initiated by God. But on the flip side of that, therefore, worship that is not initiated by God, worship uninitiated by God, is what we would call, the Bible word for that is idolatry. Why is it so important that we underline this? Why are we spending a Sunday morning with the idea that God initiates, that he first speaks and then we respond? Well, it's because, one of the reasons, because when we reverse this pattern, it actually ceases to be the worship of God and we start worshiping something else. In the Old Testament, when God created the people of Israel... Um, he initiated their, their life as a nation with a word, with ten words, actually, from Mount Sinai. And this is what he told the people. He, to, he says in Exodus 20, then God gave the people all these instructions. He told them how to live. And he can do that because he created them, right? He knows how they're designed to operate. He said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. It, had, it doesn't actually start with a command. He starts with who he is. I am your God. I have rescued you. I have created you. It's me that gave you birth as a nation. Therefore, here's how you live. 
And the first two things he says is this. You must not have any other god but me. No other god. And then he says you must not make for yourself an idol of any image on heaven or on earth. I don't know. If, if you, I've read that before. I'm like, that seems kind of redundant, right? Like the first two commands, have no other god and don't make an idol. Isn't that kind of the same thing? Like did he need to be redundant on that? Could we cons- You're writing on a scroll. Like we could have really cons- you know, been a little more concise on those tablets, right? But there's actually, there is a difference between these two commands, and I think it's important. Jen Wilkins said it this way. The first command is, don't worship anything other than God. You shall have not any other gods other other than me. But then the second one is actually getting this idea that we should worship nothing less than God. Less than God. So think about it this way. When, when God is speaking to Moses to write down these commands, do you know what Israel's doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're violating these commands. <laughs> like they're living again. They are actually making a golden calf. Now, what's interesting is what they say is this calf that we made, this is the God that rescued us out of Egypt. Like this, and this is our God. This is Yahweh. Now, the problem here is that they have put themselves in the place of maker, and this God of theirs has become the thing that's made. They've reversed the process. Who's really God in that scenario? This is what we do when we, we domesticate God, when, when, make, when we make him a God that we have made. Now, how do we do that? How do we make a version of God? I think one of the ways we do that is when we emphasize a specific attribute of his over another. That we reduce God to one aspect of God. So some of us maybe grew up in a home or a church or whatever, that God was just wrath. And, and then that was his, 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 his overarching attribute, if not his whole attribute of who he was. And so that changes. If that's the God we're worshiping, a God is just nothing but spewing kind of venom and hatred at me or whatever our image was that we made of him, that's going to shape the way we live, right? That worship transforms us. How am I going to live my life if I believe that I just am in living in fear and terror and dread of this God at all times? But we can also go the other way and that our God has no wrath. And he's just grace and love and everything's kind of cool. You can see the way that that would transform us in a false direction, worshiping a false version of a God. We can kind of do whatever we want because God's cool with it. He'll just kind of write us a check in the name of Jesus. It's all good. You can't have one without the other. God is all of these things. You can't have love without wrath. They go hand in, in hand. And I'm learning this as a dad. I mean, I just think about if somebody was to try to do something to my daughter, you're getting daddy wrath, right? Or if I see some, a sin in my daughter that's taking her down the wrong, self-destructing path, there's going to be an emotive response to that. The reality is our God is both wrath and he is love. Because the opposite of love is not indifference. Or excuse me, the opposite, yes, the opposite of love is indifference. It's not wrath. It's apathy. And man, God hates our sin. He hates our sin. Loves us. Hates our sin. In fact, he hated it so much that he sent himself, his son, to absorb that wrath on our behalf so that we could be invited to call him father once again. This is why, guys, this is so important that we let God initiate worship. We come to him as he is, not our false version of him. That God has invited us into relationship invited us into a conversation, but let's make no mistake, God initiates the conversation. He is the maker of heaven and earth, so he alone decides. He tells us 
who he is. He tells us who we are and our purpose and what a relationship with him looks like. He has spoken to us through the created world, spoken to us through his written word, and then finally spoke to us through his living word, Jesus himself. So our response is one that says back to God, repeats back to God who he says that he is, who he says that we are, and how we are to live. Every part of our life is to be lived as a response. God initiates worship, and then we respond. Our, our li- worship, as we say in point number three, is returning God's call. We respond. So the idea here is that God calls, we respond. God calls, we respond. So we're going to kind of get this into our brains. I'm going to speak for God. That's dangerous. And then you're going to respond. So I say God speaks. You say we respond. God speaks. God speaks. God speaks. Well done, my friends. Now, we get this. I was going to go military on you, so you're lucky. I'm a Navy family now, so it just kind of rubs off on me that I was going to say, you're going to worship me as God. Even if the world considers that odd, even if the sound off, praise him. That's, but we won't. We won't do that. We won't do that because I'd look foolish. Worship is a response to God's invitation. It's, it's, it's responding to his call. Don't leave him hanging. Okay, that's good. Uh, a, we worship is a declaration of war. Mike Cosper worded it this way. Worship is a declaration of war. What we're essentially telling God is you alone are worthy of our praise. And, and part of what that's inferring is that nothing else is worthy of your praise. I love the way John Whitvillier says that. took me a couple times to get that last name down. Every time we sing praise to the triune God, the three in one, that's just that word for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We sing praise to the triune God. We are asserting our opposition to anything that would attempt to stand in God's place. I love this. Every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. When we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we are also saying, down with the gods from whom no blessings flow. Because our hearts, my heart, is prone to worship things other than God and less than God, singing these songs is a reminder, it's a declaration that nothing else is God, nothing else is worthy or value and ultimate attention but God alone. So it was a declaration of war against these false idols, these false versions of our story. What is it positively? I would say the goal of worship is this. I would word it this way. To put the character and works of God on display. To put the character, who our God is, and his works, what he's done, on display to a watching world. And we can do this in, in a couple different ways. First of all, we can do it in the songs that we sing. We sing songs declaring that he alone is worthy of worship. Now, we have to be careful here. I think one of the pitfalls that we can make when we do this is that we actually start worshiping worship instead of worshiping God. We can love the feeling of coming together in a room full of believers uh, and friends that are singing these songs to God. And we get this feeling. And it's good. Emotions are good. But sometimes we can just come for that feeling. And that we start, how great is our praise? How great is, our, how great is this emotion? How great is, how, how beautiful are we singing and we're worshiping the very worship of God instead of worship himself? Worship than God himself. Ooh, I was careful. Um, so that basically, the, the idea, anything other than God can become an idol, including the very worship of God. If we start looking at the worship itself instead of the God that we are praying, praising. And so... 
to do this. I, I remember we were a couple years ago, actually it was quite a few years ago, the stage was that way. If you were with us, we were all facing that wall. And uh, my friend Jacob and I, we were talking after a service, and he was just kind of talking about, he was wrestling during the singing. And he's like, you know, we were singing the song, how, how uh, I think it was How Great Is Our God. And um, he said, I'm, I'm looking around seeing everybody singing. And, you know, we're, we're not the most charismatic church, okay? And so he said, I'm watching these people, and they're singing this song. And they're going, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And he's like, what are we doing? Like, and, but what he, what he actually came away with was he, uh, that he was being super judgy of everybody else in the room. That was the problem. And he said, what we're singing is how great is our God, not how great is our worship. Like, even when our worship stinks, right? Even when it's not reflecting his, and his glory and what he's due, he says, that's not the point. The point is the greatness of our God. And so what we want to do, and part of this, is to make sure we are describing who our God is that we're praising, not just singing about our praise. And so I wanted to do that here for just a minute together. I want us to just kind of, from your seats, just shout out a few things, like to say, God, you are. So just call out as it comes, and it's even okay if we talk over each other, right? But just call out a few things about who our God is that we're praying. So call it out right now. He's faithful. What else? Redeemer. Missioned. Amazing. Good. Personal. Personable. Merciful. <laughs> Glad that he is. <laughs> True. He's faithful. Forgiving. Knows everything. Loving. Here, remember who our God is, who it is that we're worshiping. And this is why life's storms are going to hit. Maybe for some of you today, they are hitting. And if the focus has been on the feeling of worship, on the worship itself, that is not a sufficient sustainer in the storms of life. Because whatever feelings that we drum up here, and again, feelings aren't bad, but that is not going to sustain us in the eye of the storm. Going to sustain us is having meditated on the reality of who our God is. And to say, God, you are good even when everything says the opposite. That, God, you are love, that you are for us, that you are in control. I'm clinging to that truth. That's faith. I'm clinging to the truth that you say that you're that because this certainly doesn't seem like it. It certainly doesn't feel like it. And in the eye of the storm to know he's the one that tramples over death and chaos, clinging to that truth. We sing the songs about who our God is. We don't just do it in the songs that we sing. We also do it in the songs that we live, that our life, our life should, should display the same truths that our songs are singing. Otherwise, that's kind of hypocrisy, right? That's the definite, like, if, if what we're saying and singing is a disconnect from how we're living, then there's a hypocrisy there. We don't actually believe it. That, so, so what we've been saying, we said last week, is that we are rehearsing on Sunday morning. As we come together and declare like we just did, who our God is, we sing those songs as we should live in the rest of the week in life's rhythms. 
that we believe he's in control. We sing that he's in control. We sing that he's loved. We've got to go out and live that way. That worship is not just 75 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's 24-7 all year long. In fact, our entire life is to be lived as a worshipful response to God's initiating call to worship. But how do we do that? Like, that sounds good, right? But what does it look like to walk in that? Well, Adam and Eve, the way that they were to live a life response back to God was to simply go out and do what he said, right? Go fill the earth. Like, go represent my rule and reign on earth. So I would say it this way. A life worship of God is living as he created us to live. It's living the life that he has invited us into. And so a couple of practical things that we do in that is we, we live a life of gratitude. That we're thanking the giver for the life that he... We, said, we sang earlier, it's your breath in our lungs. And we're thankful for the good things that you've given us. And then we take care of the creation around us as he called us to. That we love. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That we love the created world that he's put us in and take care of it as he's commanded us to. And then finally, that we're, we know ultimately as Jesus followers that we live this out in our discipleship with Jesus, that we are becoming who Jesus would be if he were me, because it's his life in me. So let's just take a couple of practical examples and say, how do we do this Monday morning? Let's start where I always love to start, eating a cookie. So how do you eat a cookie in a, as an act of worship, right? Which is like, you're like, yes, I'm going to worship all the time, like you just said, Justin. So, man, you could, I mean, it could be so simple. Like, it's taking a bite out of that big, gooey, crunchy, it's always best when they're kind of crunchy and gooey, crunchy on the outside, gooey on the inside, come on, praise Jesus. And you take a bite out of that cookie, and you just go, thank you, Lord, Mike. And you just thank God for the cookie. Like, there's no thing too small to thank him for. I thank you, God, that you put the Einstein-like genius into the brain of whoever invented cookies. Thank you. But then we interact with that cookie the way that he's intended. So first of all, it's got to be gluten-free. If there's gluten in it, I'm sorry to say, that's just demon worship. So, <laughs> whatever. So, we know, like, man, one of, the, one of the practical ways is, like, the scripture talks about all things in moderation. So it could be good and worshipful to praise him with one or two cookies. It could be a different thing with 54 cookies, right? (laughs) And and how about the way that we see the things that he's given us for others? Like he's given me these cookies to share, not not to hoard for myself. What about when we go to work? How do we work unto the glory of God when we thank him? We thank him for the job that he's given us, even if it's hard, especially learning how to thank him when it's hard. Or what about when we're between jobs or have lost our job? That once again, we say, God, you have provided all I need. It's not what I earn from this paycheck. I'm trusting you. That one of the ways is loving the people around us. An act of worship is, is how do I treat my coworkers? How do I talk to them? How do I talk about them when they're not there? Do I talk about them when they're not there? What about my integrity? Am I working as my creator works? With excellence. With, with, with in, like, I'm, not, I'm not saying I showed up at this time when I actually showed up at that time, Right? These little ways that are all acts of worship. What about changing a diaper? This has become a new reality for your pastor. To say, God, thank you. Thank you for my child. And thank you that changing diapers is but one stage in the circle of life, right? (laughs) As I've learned to say, this poo shall pass. (laughs) There's a cool uh, prayer book called Every Moment Holy. And it's got these little prayers in there that just talk about the everyday tasks and the way that we can see these as moments of worship. 
Um, and so this, there's actually, this is a liturgy for changing diapers number one. There's two of them. This guy has lots of time on his hands. So he says this, Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as these, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost. For it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice, I'm changing a diaper at 2 a.m., for example, like bright, ragged patches are being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. Isn't this just always your mentality when you're changing diapers? No act of worship is insignificant. Every moment of our lives can be lived as a response to who our God is, as we display his character and his works in what we're doing, whether it's eating a cookie, changing a diaper, or going to that same job that we've been going to for years. Maybe ask yourself, am I living my life as a response to God's invitation to worship him? And I don't know, if you're like me, my answer is often no. That's not how I'm living my life. I'm not living as he, I'm not thankful. I'm demanding that, that I'm not living to reflect his glory. I'm living just to, for, for myself, my will be done, not thy will be done, to elevate my own comfort and, and power and control, not to turn to him. And, and so we know that we have failed to live a life of worship in response to him. That's the bad news. But the good news that we're going to look more in depth into the next two weeks of our fall and redemption in Christ I want to give a spoiler alert here at the end of the service that Jesus, Jesus is the one. How do we return? How do we respond in worship to God? The only way back into relationship and right worship of God is through the person of Jesus. I remember when Lucy was uh, just a couple weeks old, uh, she would smile, but she wasn't actually like, I don't think she meant to smile. She was just kind of going through like the facial expression slot machine, right? Smile, frown, like stare at you with dead eyes face. Uh, cry all night. She really liked that one. That one kept coming out. Cherries, cherries, cherries. Uh, so, th- but then eventually what became, what's become really cool is that now she's actually starting to smile in response to us. That, so as I smile at her, she smiles back at me. So here's our little game where I fling her in the air. She's crazy, loves to be jostled. Like her life motto is always, always, always shake a baby. So that's, so as I'm throwing her up in the air and she's watching me, responding to the game we're playing, watching my smile and smiling back. I remember when I first started thinking about that, I'm like, that's kind of amazing when they're just a couple weeks old, a month old, that they are able to even do something as, sim- as simple as smile back. Now, I'm no scientist, but somehow she's watching my smile and her brain is computing that and then forming the right muscles in her face to smile back at me. I'm like, my kid's a prodigy, right? Genius. Right? And no, but this is just a natural response, right? She's just watching her daddy smile at her, and she's smiling back. And this is God, that He created us with a smile of love. That our God, but, but sinfully, we don't smile back. Like, we do not respond in like kind. As sinners, we don't and can't respond to Him as He treats us. But God spoke a better word. He made a way back into his presence through the smile of his father. Hebrews says this as beautifully as anything in the first few verses of, of Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. The prophets were the people who told us who God is, what he says, what he's like, what he wants. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. 
God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. All things are His. And through the Son, He created the universe. That Jesus, it's through Jesus that He spoke that word of creation into being. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And He sustains everything by His mighty power. It was his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. So Jesus is God's word made flesh. That Jesus, I love the way it says that, that Jesus, the Son, radiates God's glory. He expresses God's character. If we want to know who God is and what he looks like, how he acts, we look no further than the four Gospels in our Bible that we see God with skin on, how Jesus, the only human being to rightly reflect, to image correctly God's intent for us, his whole life lived as an obedient life of trust, a response back to his Father to do his will, not his own. But more than that, I love what this verse says. He then died on that cross. Part of his obedience to God was to die on the cross to absorb the punishment we deserved for our idolatry, for our not worshiping God as he was. And in Christ, we can be raised to a new worship-capable life. But how do we do that? How do we do that? I love what 2 Corinthians tells us. It says, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So talking about Moses, when he was walking up the mountain as a sinner to approach God's presence, Man, when he came back down, he was glowing with God's glory. And so the people were like, we can't handle that. And he put a veil over his face to kind of subdue the glory. What the New Testament, tell, what the Gospels tell us is that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God did it down to us so that we could enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God again through Christ. He goes on to say, for the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom in Jesus. And what do we say freedom is? It's not to do whatever we want to do. That freedom is to be able to finally do what God intended for us to do in the first place. And that's to have a relationship with Him. That Jesus has opened the veil, made the way back into the Father's presence to see His face. The smiling face of the Father welcoming His prodigal home. As we see that face, it does something to us. I love the last verse. So all, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see. We can now see God as he is again in Christ. And not just see, but what does it say? And reflect. Reflect the glory of the Lord. As we see his smile, like Lucy, we're going to start to naturally learn to respond back in like kind. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into, this is a process, into his glorious image. With the veil gone, we can now see God's smile in Jesus. We start to respond. The more that I watch Matt Chandler and listen to him, I become like him, right? The more that we said we become what we behold. We are transformed by what we worship. Brothers and sisters, let's put our eyes on Jesus. And as we listen to his teachings, as we watch him in action in the Gospels, as we walk with him in real time today, we keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. What's going to start to happen is a change in us, a change of heart from the inside out. And we're going to start to radiate, like Jesus does, the very glory and character and works 
of our God. My life can start to become a response to God's invitation. Just pray with me. Father, we thank you that you, first of all, made us and then invited us into this relationship. And even when we took that left turn and decided we would do our own thing and make ourselves maker instead of you, Lord, that through Christ, to absorb the wrath, to indicate for you so loved us that you sent your Son to die in our place. And now in him, we can enter back into your presence, smile back to you. And whether it's eating a cookie, changing a diaper, going to work, Lord, we can now live a life as we are very much in process of doing, being able to live a life back that worships you through Christ. So, Father, we just pray now as we end our time together that we would just hear your word and respond and say the things that you just told us that you are, it's true. Amen. That is who you are, and we praise you. All God's people said. I want to do, if you'd stand with me, we're going to, we're going to respond. And so, again, we want to respond. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. So we're going to speak together the words of God as we hear as a power in us speaking out God's word. We're going to read again Psalm 100, and then we're going to respond in worship. We're going to sing back to him who he declares that he is uh, rightly. So would you read?